right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. Um, if you're new here and you just saw Andy speak and that you saw me, you may be asking yourself, do we require all the pastors to wear the exact same shirt? Um, yes, we do. So um, let's get started. The very nature of what I do is I stand up here kind of every week and I, I talk about my life. And I was trying to think this week, is there anything that I haven't shared yet? Am I going to eventually run out of stories? And it finally hit me. There's something I haven't shared about my life. It's um, been with me from my birth. Here's the deal is that um, I have never been able to sleep well. Um, it has been like this my entire life. Like for those of you who are new parents, um, I was the nightmare baby, right? Like that you drive around the block and I'm not falling asleep. Like you bounce on your knee and I'm not falling asleep. I am the nightmare baby. My mom says I've always been that way. Not that, not overall, but just, you know, in relation to sleep. She loves me in every other area of my life. And, um, you know, uh, I, I was like that as a baby. I, I've, I've been like that as a grown-up. I have trouble falling asleep. I have trouble staying asleep. Um, and, and even when I do fall asleep, I, I have the weirdest sleep. I have the absolute weirdest dreams. And so, um, for example, th- this week, um, I had this dream where our, we have two dogs. One of our dogs, Riley, uh, got out, which if you know anything about our dog, Riley, like, he's always getting out. We always joke he's our rescue dog who's trying to become a rescue dog again. And so um, th- in our dream, he, Riley gets out, and I just start chasing after him, which is what I also do in reality as well. So I'm running through the neighborhood. I'm running by Coors Field. I'm running through downtown. I run into the mountains. I'm not sure how um, I got there so quickly. Uh, it's actually in the mountains that I lose Riley, and uh, I am devastated. I, I mean, in this dream, I'm crying. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I've got to return back home. I've got to go talk to Megan, and I've got to go tell her that, you know, we've lost our dog. So uh, all of a sudden, I'm back in the house. I'm not sure how that happened either. Uh, I walk in. I see Megan. I said, you know, sweetheart, I have to tell you something. Uh, Riley is gone. We lost him. He ran away. I don't know if we're ever going to see him again. And uh, Megan, much to my surprise in this dream, looks at me, and she goes, it's no big deal. Like, I actually replaced him. I said, replaced him? And she said, yeah. And then she, like, reaches behind her, and she actually pulls out this yellow tabby cat that's just like, meow. You know, it's just like, hey, what's up? And, um, and I'm like, this is a little bit weird. And um, I don't know uh, if you ever have weird dreams, um, but, but here, maybe this is just me. And if it is, it's going to be a little bit embarrassing. But um, if you ever have weird dreams, when you're waking up, do you ever ask yourself, like, did that really happen? You know, okay, so like some people are tracking with me here. Like, like for me, when I wake up from a dream like that, there's like a 30-minute dialogue going on in my head, like, did I really like do that? Did I really take a trip to Paris? Did I really start at middle linebacker for the Denver Broncos? Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, is that actually the events that unfolded the day before? So, so some of you have probably done this as well. And, and here's the thing. For those of you who have done this, let me ask you a question. Like, what is it that you do to be able to discern dream from reality? Right? Like in that moment that you're waking up, you're having that dialogue with yourself. What is it that you do in order to interpret, like, was this a dream or did this really happen? Well, if you're anything like me, what you begin to do is you uh, filter uh, that dream through uh, some foundational truths that you absolutely know are true. Right? You track with me. So, for example, with this dream with Riley, uh, you know, all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, you know what, this can't be true because Megan adopted a cat and Megan hates cats. Like, she absolutely hates cats, doesn't want to adopt a cat, doesn't want to pick up a cat. So there's no way she is bringing that cat into our house. Or I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, you know, I think Riley's gone, but 
wait a second, like that is him laying prostrate over my body, like as I am trying to get some sleep, which is probably why I don't get very good sleep in the first place. And his face is in my face and he's breathing. And I'm like, okay, he's not lost. He's right there. And what, what do you do? And immediately, once you kind of remind yourself, you reteach yourself, you return to some foundational truths you know are absolutely true. You're able to interpret what is real, what's not real, what's truth, what's a lie, what's fact, and what is fiction. Now, Here's the deal. Tonight, what Paul is wanting us to do uh, as we proceed through this survival guide of the book of Ephesians is he wants us to do the hard work of interpretation. What he, what he wants us to do is much in the same way, recognize that you and I, we exist uh, in a culture, in a city, in a generation, in an environment where a truth war rages in the most important areas of our lives. And you and I have to do the hard work to figure out what is true and what is not true. What should I believe and what should I not believe? What should I really uh, apply to my life and what should I reject? In fact, he's going to say you're going to see this in some of the most important areas of your life. You're going to see this, for example, uh, as to whether or not you should be hopeful or hopeless. Now, the gospel says that we're hopeful. uh, We have a gifted hope through Jesus Christ. But if if you just are aware, the surrounding environment is basically telling you your world is falling apart. We're all going to die, and it's not going to go well for you. So should I panic or should I be hopeful? He's also going to talk to you about whether or not you're valuable or whether you're worthless whether you're valuable or worthless. And we, we wrestle with that in our hearts, don't we? Do I have value or, or am I nothing more than just a, the byproduct of a random series of chance chemical uh, reactions that have led to me having 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of meaningless existence until I'm buried in the ground and die? He's going to talk to you about whether or not you are empowered or whether or not or you are powerless, right? Because a lot of times we look and we observe the areas of our lives that desperately need to be changed, but, but a lot of times we feel like we're not the ones who have the power. That rests with somebody more important than us, more intelligent than us, uh, wealthier than us. And he's going to say, well, can we really believe that the power to change the areas of life that matter the most exists uh, inside of us? And so here's the deal, is that you and I, much like when we wake up from a bad dream and have to, to filter what is real or not, we have to do the same thing in the ebb and flow of our daily lives. You're going to have to do that tomorrow when you go to work. And what Paul is going to tell us to do is that God comes in and he gives us wisdom to be able to discern what is a dream and what is reality. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn uh, to, to, verse, to verse 15, okay? Verse 15 that we looked at. In chapter 1, and what we're going to start with is Paul telling us that we have a fight for sight, okay? Uh, I know that's a little bit cheesy. It rhymes, but here's the deal. that You and I, we have to fight for sight. And let's see what he says here. Uh, let's, let's look at verse 15. He says, for this reason, and the re- what he's doing is he is returning to what we talked about last week. What we talked about last week is how every aspect of who God is, uh, every person, of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has been laboring for your good and for your joy since the foundations of the earth. That God has been so gracious to us for this reason. Look what he says next. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So he's saying he prays for us. He prays for us. And what does he pray for us? Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart 
enlightened. Now, anytime Paul says the same thing uh, multiple times, just the way it is with your wife, you know it's important to listen to, okay? And so he says the same thing over and over again, right? That God may give you a spirit of wisdom, that God may give you a spirit of revelation, that you might have knowledge of him, that you might have the eyes of your heart enlightened. What Paul is praying is that you might see that you might really see the tangible grace and goodness of God in your life. This is not just a folktale somebody made up a long time ago to make you feel better. This is not some superstition that once you get an undergrad, once you get a master's degree, once you get a PhD, you, you educate yourself beyond. It is real. And you would see how tangible the grace and truth of the gospel is for your life. He's praying for us to see. You know, and I was kind of processing this for my own life this week, uh, the, the phrase, it's, you know, familiar catchphrase that, that hit me was that, that phrase, seeing is believing. You ever heard somebody say that? Seeing is believing. I, I saw this illustrated beautifully this week in Esquire magazine. Esquire magazine uh, actually did this documentary uh, about this 67-year-old Russian farmer who had never left his farm in the smack dab middle of Russia. And, and Esquire magazine sends him on a world tour, right? And, and it was I watched this documentary, and I'm just going to be honest. It got a little bit uh, dusty up in, up in the, uh, the office I was working out of. I mean, it was unbelievably emotional because what you were seeing was this glimpse into a man who his whole life had heard about in certain things and had kind of objective cognitive knowledge about certain things. But for the very first time in his life, he was seeing things. So, so for example, he had heard about airplanes before. Actually, his farm, there was a plane that would travel. Its, its flight path happened would go right over his, his farm, and he would look up, and it was this tiny white dot way, way up in the sky, and he could, he could barely hear the roar of its engines. And yet then you get a glimpse into here's this guy who actually gets to go on an airplane, and he gets to see the beauty of the world for t- from 20,000 feet for the first time in his life. Or, for example, he had read about the ocean. He had read about how big it is and how incredible it is and how beautiful the view is. Uh, He had seen a picture or two. But then they fly him to the coast of the Pacific, and he puts his feet in the sand, and you can see him see for the first time in his life the vastness and the beauty of the view. It was beautiful to see this man go from just knowing and observing and having an awareness of something, to actually having it see him. And when he had sight, you could see he was visibly changed in the process. What Paul is praying, what he says he's praying for you, and what he's praying for me, is that we might see. That we might see God's grace in our lives. Because here's the deal, is that that even in uh, an unchurched, skeptical city like our city that we love so much. I mean, the reality is, is it's very easy for you and it's very easy for me just by the very nature of being raised in the United States to have just enough knowledge about Jesus not to marvel at him, not to see him for who he really is. And so maybe this means, uh, maybe you're, you're an advanced student in theology. Maybe this means um, you just read some Christian books on your own. Uh, maybe this means uh, you have your notions of Christianity come from what you see on TV. Maybe this means you were raised in church or you are raised in a Christian school and you have uh, harsh experiences that you're trying to run away from. I'm not saying that knowledge is bad. It's imperative for you to understand what you believe and why you believe it. But it's easy easy for us in the United States not to see Jesus, to know about Jesus, to be aware of Jesus, to mock Jesus, but not to see Jesus and be changed by Jesus as a consequence. And what Paul wants us to do is to see him, 
Because sight makes all the difference. It's the difference between being aware that honey is sweet and tasting its sweetness for the first time in your life. It's the difference between seeing a picture at the top of a Colorado 14er and taking in the vastness of the view for yourself after you've done the hard work of trekking to the top. It's the difference between watching a romantic comedy where where you see two people fall in love and actually feeling that burning sensation in your heart for another for the first time in your life. What he's saying is you need more than just knowledge about Jesus or of Jesus. You need to see him for who he really is, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened and to be changed as a consequence. Now, the question that you and I should ask then is, what then should we see? Like, what, what is it that we're hoping to see? And uh, here's what he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us we're trying to see three things in particular. Um, that because of Jesus, three things. One, we're hopeful, not hopeless. Okay? Hopeful, not hopeless. L- look at what he writes next in verse 18. So he's, he's prayed that we would see, and look what he writes next. Verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. To know the hope that he has called you. Let me just kind of define, when the Bible talks about hope, here's what what it means. An anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's guidance. An anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's guidance. And and remember what he talked about last week, that because God the Father has chosen you, because God the Son has redeemed you, because God the Spirit has secured you in your faith, we can have the belief, the rock-solid belief, that under God's guidance, for you who are a Christian, you are headed for, you are destined towards a favorable destination. Now, I think there's some parts of Christianity where I have to um, stand up here and try to kind of convince you that are relevant for your lives. But, but here's the deal, is that this is just one of those. This kind of area of hope is just one of those that I would say that, that it's so obvious that we need. In fact, here, here's kind of like the, the way you would see it, maybe on a bumper sticker of somebody who's driving around Denver. Um, a person can live 40 days without hope, four days without water, four minutes without air, but only four seconds without hope. Uh, I'm not sure why that's not on my Subaru yet. Um, it feels like it should just be there. But here's the deal, is that we, uh, we, we, we recognize, we understand our desperate need for hope. But if you're, just, if you're just honest, kind of aware of what's going on, you and I, we exist in a largely hopeless culture. We do. If you, if you think about like what news stories get the most views, if you think about um, what uh, Facebook posts get the most shares, if you think about um, the way that companies get your interest and your, and your, your money through their average. I mean, here's, here's the deal. Is it's a consistent message that says the world is falling apart, the economy is falling apart, the politicians can't be trusted, uh, you're headed towards impending doom and disaster, you've been raising your kids wrong your entire life, you've been feeding something, them something that's actually been poisoning them their entire lives, and you're like, oh my gosh, life is falling apart, and we are destined for nothing but doom. In fact, our culture is so obsessed with hopelessness. Have you thought about just like how prevalent that theme is just, just in the stuff we watch, for example. I was thinking about this. I saw almost every single movie that came out this summer, almost every single major summer blockbuster. And just think about these. I mean, I, um, World War Z, Elysium, Oblivion, uh, White House Down. Uh, what was the other one that was exactly the same? Um, Olympus Has Fallen, uh, Superman, Iron Man 3. Uh, I saw all of these movies, and the consistent theme was the world gets blown up. Like, that's just, like, every single one of those movies, I was like, I think I've seen this before. I think I've seen this seven times already. The world gets blown up, and we just sort of get in a theater. We watch it happen. We clap. We go home. It's like we just kind of wait for it to unfold and for it to happen. 
We exist in a largely hopeless culture, and this is one of the most practical areas where Christianity becomes good news for your life and good news for mine, because through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, we are gifted hope. In fact, through the resurrection, what you are gifted is a secured future, a secured future blessing where you will spend eternity with him in heaven. And here's the deal, is that when you finally start to understand that is my final destination, that I am gifted through the gospel a secured hope, then everything else that you and I experience starts to be put into the place of the, of the proper perspective. Here, here's the way I think about it, is even though we live in Denver, the reality is, if you fly somewhere, most of you probably fly somewhere, um, you never get to your final destination immediately. You know what I'm saying? So, like, what do you have to experience? You have to experience a layover. And the thing about layovers is layovers are almost always in um, locations that are much lamer than your final destination. Uh, I don't know why it works that way, uh, but it seems to always work that way. So let's say, for example, you're taking a family vacation. You're taking a family vacation, and you decided, you know, I'm tired of being landlocked. I'm going to go to the coast. I'm going to go to the East Coast, and I'm going to go to Martha's Vineyard, coast of New England, beautiful, incredible, can't wait to play in the sand and see the ocean. It's going to be unbelievable. Here's the deal. You're not flying directly to Martha's Vineyard. You're stopping in Newark, New Jersey. Am I right? And I don't, I don't know if anybody here is from New Jersey. Um, no, no hate towards New Jersey except for Jersey Shore. Um, but here's the deal, is um, I do not want to end up in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, if you've ever been to that airport, you know that it is not a fun airport to go through. So you land uh, in Newark, New Jersey, and uh, I'm going to be honest with you, it, it is not uh, nearly as beautiful as the final destination of Martha's Vineyard. Now here's the deal, is that in spite of all that, when you land in that, uh, that place where you're going to be waiting for a period of time, you don't freak out, right? Like, I don't land in Newark, New Jersey, and I don't start running through the airport, start waving my arms around, like, this isn't my final destination. I'm supposed to get to Martha's Vineyard. Help, 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 help. No, why? Because, because I'm aware that there's a final destination that's awaiting me that's far much more beautiful, and this is only a temporary stop for us. Now, in, in the most cheesy kind of way possible, here's the deal, is that that's what Paul wants us to understand tonight. Here's the deal, is that you and I, in the ebb and flow of our daily lives, we experience tremendous layovers. Right, I mean, like he makes no, uh, he, he doesn't want to trick you into thinking that just because you become a Christian, life is going to be easy for you. In fact, he's actually writing this letter from jail. So, so he himself can, can, can articulate that. But here's what he's going to say. This is the promise of the final destination puts all temporary layovers in perspective. And because we have a secure future destination in the gospel of an eternity spent with God, where he will make all things new, then what we experience in the here and now is put into its proper perspective. And you and I, we can have hope. We can be hopeful as opposed to hopeless, despite the fact that everything around us may be telling us to think different. And as the world spirals out of control, and as money is tight, and as politicians seem incompetent, we say no. No matter what, no matter what, this is a temporary layover, and we await a secure future destination. Now, the second thing he wants us to see is not just to be hopeful and, as opposed to hopeless, but that we are valuable instead of worthless, okay? Valuable instead of worthless. And look at what he, um, look at what he says next. He says, just after this, uh, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, you have to read that closely because 
the first time I read this, I read this very quickly, and I thought it said, um, what are his glorious, uh, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, uh, of your glorious inheritance uh, in the saints? And I thought to myself, oh, that's cool. Like, there's all sorts of clever illustrations. You're God's son, and, when, you know, when, when you have a family member who dies, they give you the inheritance. But, but that's not what he says there whatsoever. What does he say? What are the riches of, what's that next word? His glorious inheritance in the saints. And what, what Paul is saying is that he wants us to see God's inheritance, the preciousness of God's inheritance. Now, what's weird to me is thinking about God having an inheritance, right? And especially that inheritance being precious. Like when I think of somebody having a precious inheritance, um, I typically think of like somebody who is struggling just to get by and they're way over their heads, all sorts of, you know, debt from school, uh, all sorts of debt from bad decision making. And all of a sudden what happens, like a wealthy uncle dies and all of a sudden the riches of his estate are gifted to you and all of a sudden you are no longer in debt. You can buy a house, you can buy a car and you, you know, run around like a crazy man because you're so happy that this person has died, respectfully so. And, And so I can think about this where, you know, maybe somebody like me and maybe somebody like you, but God, like how... How does God have an inheritance so valuable that he deems it precious? Think of it this way, maybe even to make it a little bit more practical for you to wrap your head around. Um, What do you get for somebody who has everything and they're like, oh my gosh, like, thank you so much. That's precious to me, right? Like, let's just say, for example, you're buddies with John Elway. John Elway, Super Bowl champion, two times, Hall of Famer, tremendously wealthy, works for the Broncos, owns all sorts of dealerships around the city, Let's say you get invited to his birthday party. Like, what is it that you bring the man who has everything where he's like, oh my gosh, like, I've never had one of these before. I, I could never buy this. Look at this. This is astounding. What is viewed that precious? And that is what Paul wants us to have wrapped in our minds when we look at this. Because here's the answer he gives to this question. He says, he, he answers it. What's so precious that the God who has everything would deem it precious. Uh, what, what is that inheritance? Well, look, at what he's, look at what he just said. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In the saints. And if you remember our first week, what we said was that if you're a Christian, that you are viewed as a saint in the eyes of God. Through the death and life of Jesus, you are no longer looked at sin- as sinner. You are now looked as saint. And here's the deal. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, what Paul is saying is what God deems is his precious inheritance is you. Is you. It's you that he views that valuable and that precious. And I'm telling you, you need this. You need this for your life. Because while this message of truth, we told you that you are valuable in the eyes of God through the life and death of Jesus, There are all these other people speaking into you that you are not valuable, that you are worthless. I'm telling you, that is so dangerous for your life. I'm telling you, it enslaves you, right? I mean, advertisers do this all the time, right? They tell you, you are not beautiful, ladies, unless you buy this. Men, you are not really a man unless you purchase this body spray that we've named something absolutely ridiculous for you to purchase and use. And we've shown you these ridiculous commercials where women flock to you like the salmon of Capistrano if you will, uh, will, will spray it upon your body. It doesn't smell very good. I'll just say that. You'll have employers do this to you. Am I right? Like, you'll have employers only speak into you when you've messed up. Some of you are in relationships like this. The only time where, you, where the other person speaks 
clearly and honestly and loudly is when that person is messed up. And I'm telling you, it enslaves you. It is enslaving. It's why that for some of you, when you have a really bad day, you are enslaved to go buying a certain product in order to make you feel better about yourself. It's why for some of you, you are enslaved to your job and your, and your boss's approval, right? You're like You will do whatever it takes. You, you will even do in human things. You will get uh, an unhealthy amount of sleep. You will go to unhealthy ends in order to have a boss who has always condemned you finally praise you and just say, well done, good and faithful servant. Some of you, you're enslaved to really bad relationships. I mean, for some of you, you've been in and out, in and out, in and out of really bad relationships. And that person brings you back in because they know exactly what to say, exactly sort of what cards to deal, exactly what sort of emotional heartstrings to pull for you to say like, okay, let's give it a 17th try. Let's see how this turns out. And through all of that, you are being exploited. You are being enslaved. Your worth is being minimized. And because of that, you think you are in the debt of another, the debt of a company, the debt of an employer, the debt of a significant other. And you're not. What Paul is saying to you is you are valuable in the eyes of God. I'm not saying this in some sort of nebulous, new age, mushy, like, you're a snowflake and everybody's unique and God loves you. I'm not saying it like that. God has gifted you a value far superior to that. He looks at you as his son. He looks at you as his daughter. And because of this, as you begin to wrap your mind around the gifted worth of God in your life, it transforms you and changes you to be able to live differently to look at advertisers who try to exploit your pursuit of beauty and say, God has already looked at me and seen me for who I really am, and he has deemed me beautiful in his eyes. To be able to look at an employer who is pushing you to do ungodly, unhealthy things and say, look, like he is going to provide for me and take care of me. The one person in the universe whose opinion really matters has already given his favor to me. And because of that, you, boss, do not determine my ultimate outcome or my ultimate happiness, and so I will have boundaries in my life. For some of you, it frees you to walk away from a relationship that friends and family and people in your church have told you, just stay away, just stay away, stay away, stay away, because here's the deal, is that when you start to understand your value, you start to understand that you are a daughter or a son of God, and you're not the person who then has to say, well, you know, this isn't good, but this is good enough, and I mean, I'm getting older, and I'm not sure if this is going to work out, and I want to get married, and I want to have kids, and you know, I don't think God would really bring along somebody who really loves Jesus, so I guess I'm just going to have to compromise and go for it. You are valuable in his eyes, and he fights for you, and he protects you, and he cares for you as a good dad should. I understand for some of you, you have very strained relationships with your fathers, but God is a good and gracious father who has deemed you beautiful, who has deemed you valuable, and you are full of worth in his eyes, and Paul desperately wants us to see that as well. Now, third and finally, what he wants us to see is... um, we're empowered, not powerless, okay? We're empowered, not powerless. And, and, and here's what he's doing as he's answering, as he's finishing verse 19 is, um, you know, the question in our lives, the question in any culture, the question particularly in any city is like, who has the power, right? Like, who has the power? So, um, 
you know, some people would say, well, it's like the, the people in elected office who have the power to really bring about change. Some people would say, uh, no, it's actually the companies that own America. Those would be the people who really have the power to bring about change. Some people would say, no, it's our fascination with celebrities and athletes. It's those people who really have the power. And here's what Paul's going to say is it's actually Jesus who has the power. It's Jesus. Look at verse 19. Here's what he says. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might? And so he says, it's Jesus who has the power. And then if we're trying to wrestle with, like, how do we believe this is true? Well, he points us toward the most tangible illustration of God's power. Look at verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul is saying is that the power rests with God. And if there's any doubt about that whatsoever, all you have to do is look to the resurrection, the belief that Jesus didn't just die, he got back up again and started living again as the tangible example that he really is the one with the power. That is, the resurrection is God's ultimate power play. Now, what's interesting to me, um, many of you know I I got my undergrad in history, which is good for nothing other than giving interesting um, kind of sermon anecdotes. Um, You'll never get hired because you have a history degree. And... um, it's interesting that if you study history, this is not a new concept whatsoever. I'm not saying that you know, throughout history you see people die and they get back up, but I am saying what you do see throughout history is people making the most elaborate attempts in order to defeat death. So, for example, in imperial China, uh, you had these emperors. They were the most powerful men in the land, just unbelievably powerful individuals, um, who actually uh, had this potion put together, and they were told, like, if you drink this, you will be able to overcome death. The only problem was that the potion was filled with mercury, and they actually died sooner rather than later. A little bit, a little bit ironic. Or um, actually in 1492, I think it was, Pope Innocent, the most uh, powerful uh, religious figure of Europe of that day, uh, was on his deathbed. In order to uh, extend his life, he actually uh, asked for the blood of three young boys, um, which ultimately led to everybody dying. Uh, very sad as well. You go into the uh, 17, 1800s, and the leading medicinal minds of that day had finally said, we finally cracked the code, we finally got some medicine that had lead to uh, people defeating death. And um, as you can imagine, all of them died as well. And you, you go to today. I mean, still the leaders of an industry, the leaders uh, in uh, medicine are arguing and fighting for the exact same thing. The co-founder of Google, the CEO of Oracle, even Michael Jackson, right? Like if you remember a few years ago, I mean, Michael Jackson was like, I'm going to get cryogenically frozen and uh, then I will live forever. And um, what happens to these people? They all die, right? They, they all die as well. And so it's interesting to me that if you study history for thousands upon thousands of years, the most powerful, the most influential, the wealthiest, the most educated, the leaders in science and medicine have all tried to do the exact same thing. They've tried to defeat death. And when Jesus Christ, when he rose from the grave, what he proclaimed is not just do I have the power to overcome the one disease humanity still has no answer for whatsoever, but I have the power. 
The power rests in me. And this is what's so good, such great news about this. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, is the point that Paul makes here is not just that Jesus has the power, but he's eager to share it with us as well. Look again at what he says in verse 19. Not only what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, but what does he say next? Toward us who believe. And so the point that he's making here is not just as the power rests with Jesus to do the one thing that we as humans have never been able to do before, but he is eager to gift that power toward us who believe. And here's where I just want to push some of you, because we did an entire series about the resurrection, and we, we, we dealt with a number of the uh, you know, philosophical pushbacks that you might have. And we can talk about that if you, if you want to. But, but even if you're in this room and you're trying to struggle to, to deal with such an audacious claim, maybe just extend me the, the courtesy for the next five minutes to just say, I'm just going to believe it's true. I'm just going to pretend. Even, even if it's hard for me, I'm just going to pretend to believe it's true. Because here is where you can tangibly feel the goodness of the gospel in your life. That if that if it really is true that Jesus has the power and the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave, that, that exact same power is gifted to work in your life as well. What is it that God could do in your life? I mean, just think about this. If you're anything like me, there's all these areas of my life that I've just assumed are just sort of doomed to failure, right? I mean, maybe relationships with somebody in your family, maybe relationship with somebody who's close to you or used to be close to you, isn't close to you anymore, uh, where you are in your job scenario, the way your future looks, the way your love life looks, the way your marriage looks, the way your relationship with your kids looks. And it's easy to feel that you are powerless to do anything about the disaster that you've experienced in those areas of your life again and again and again and again. And what Paul is saying here is such good news for you that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is readily available in your life as well and is meant to be unleashed to do a work that is so spectacular and astounding. The only explanation is that God stepped in and moved. He is the God who does the impossible in our lives. He's the God who is eager to do the impossible in your life. And what Paul wants us to do is to see, to see. Even for you who have been Christians for some time, I mean, my guess is there's areas of your life you don't believe that's true. I would just, I mean, where is that? Like, what, what is the area of your life? What is the scenario that you churn over in your head again and again and again as you're trying to fall asleep at night, but you just think, you know, all you're doing is, right, like, you're mind mapping out the worst case scenarios if you're anything like me. Well, what are those areas in your life where you just say, you know what, the power of the resurrection can be unleashed. I want to see that be unleashed. And instead of talking to myself about how bad things are going to be, I'm going to start talking to God in eager anticipation of the redemptive work he can do in these areas of my life. And so what Paul wants for us, what he's praying for us is that as we do life in the city and as we exist in the truth war, that we would wake up from a bad dream and we would see the truth for what it really is, that we are not powerless, we are empowered, that we are not worthless, that we are valuable, that we are that we are not that we are not doomed to failure but God is so gracious to bring hope into our lives
We want to see. And so here's, here's what we want to do in response. Is that we just want to ask God for sight, right? Like if, like if you're blind, which Paul is saying we are, like our natural, the natural condition of our hearts, the natural condition of our spirit, the natural condition of our souls is blindness. That's what Paul is saying here. Is that a blind man can't receive sight until he asks for it. Right? A sick man can't ask for healing until he can admit the condition of his sickness and ask for healing. A blind man, my, my wife just got LASIK surgery, um, a blind woman, she was literally blind, cannot be given sight unless she's willing to be put underneath the knife. And that's the way we're meant to respond. If the we, you and I, we are meant to, to confess the condition of who we are, that we are blind and we do not see the world as we should see the world, but Jesus Christ comes and gives sight to the blind. There's stories of that again and again and again in his life and ministry here on earth. And here it is. He still does the work today. He still does the work today. And so as we close and as we pray, we confess that we are blind. We ask for sight and we strive to practically begin seeing the truth in the areas of our life where it's so hard for us to see. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, that in spite of who you are, you are eager to come in and give sight to the blind. And so I pray for us that we would be willing to confess the condition of who we are. And I think for many of us, we can look at our lives and we can say that we have felt that life is nothing more than a hopeless, worthless, purposeless experience of which I have no power to do anything about. And the gospel comes and says, not because of who we are, because of who you are. You come and write a completely different story with our lives. And God, you give hope, and you give purpose, and you give meaning, and you give power, and you bring change. And so God, as we sing, I pray that we would sing as blind men and women asking for healing, and God, that you would be eager to give sight and that we would respond. And even as we go to work tomorrow morning, even as we raise our kids tomorrow morning, as we go about the ebb and flow of our daily lives, that we would be able to see, to wake up from what is oftentimes a bad dream and to see reality from your perspective and through your lens for the first time in our lives. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.